From Koningstein Road in the east to Cetus Gap in the west, an orange curtain has descended across the Ojai Valley. This is Ojai Talk of the Town. Hey everyone, Brett Bradigan, editor of your Ojai Magazines, the monthly and quarterly. Our very distinguished guest this episode is Dr. Nomi Prinz, the author and commentator and one of the nation's leading experts and spokespeople on the banking industry, former Goldman Sachs executive herself. She has written, what is this now, seven books, including Other People's Money and It Takes a Pillage. The three books we're going to be talking about this episode are the most recent one, which is Permanent Distortion, which deals with the infusion of cash into the economy during pandemic. Also, all the president's bankers about these cozy alliances that take place at the juncture of money and politics. And also collusion about how the central bankers have pretty much rigged the world. If there's any theme to her work, it's that these people have figured out how to collectivize all the risk and share it widely, but all the upside to this system they have managed to keep for themselves. So there's a lot of interesting discussion, and uh, and she's a fascinating commentator, and it's a real honor for us to have Dr. Nomi Prince. Hey, Nomi. Hello. Hey, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this. I've been deep into your books, and I thought we'd open with Permanent Distortion, subtitled How the Financial Markets Abandoned a Real Economy Forever. Because it does feel like that so much. Now, just for background, the U.S. economy is, what, $22, 23000000000000 trillion a year? Right. And we pumped in how much liquidity since the pandemic, the first Russia money back in like March of 2020. Yeah, so the Fed created, um, and as you say, pumped into the economy about $5 trillion in the period of um, sort of early March through the next couple months, really. So yeah, that period that of 2020. Like $1,400 checks and so forth. Well, it was partly that, but it was but way more all, than that. Way more than that, right. yeah. So it went to. Now, we can talk a little bit about Silicon Valley Bank because I understand that this is more of the ripple on effect of what you're discussing in this book. Right. Because the consolidation that's happening at the top and these mid sized regional banks are now getting squeezed out, mostly because they made bad bets on interest rates, right? Yeah. So, so what happened was, you know, as we talked about, the, the, the Fed created trillions of dollars. Some went to people. Most didn't. The narrative was it went to people in checks. The reality is that was a very small percentage. Most of it is yeah. still on the Fed's books, which meant it did not go to people's checks and it did not go into the real economy. But what happened was, as um, for different reasons, inflation started getting higher um, in early 22. Actually, before that, but the Fed started yeah. noticing it in early 22 um, in March, two years after the pandemic began. Um, 
And they banks. blamed it all on the $1,400 checks, didn't they? They blamed it all, and, and this is one of the very annoying things about um, the way some of these narratives get, get spun and perpetuated. Um, and I do the math, it's a bit wonky, in permanent distortion, but the reality is it was only a small sliver that went to people, as evidenced by the fact that currently the size of the Fed's book, meaning the totality of money they printed, um, is still just under $9 trillion. It was just over $4 trillion before the pandemic. They added five. They backed off a little bit. They're around eight and a half now. So wow. most of it is still kind of there cushioning the banking system and the markets. Now, so we wonder, why are the mid-sized banks failing? What did they do with respect to interest rates? Well, over the last year, the Fed went on an aggressive interest rate hiking span. They raised yeah. rates from zero. Ostensibly to throttle down inflation. Correct. That was the narrative to throttle inflation. So so think of it like this. We've got um, an invasion of Ukraine by Russia. We've got sanctions and oil. We have energy problems. We have grid problems. We have food shortage problems. And we have a very high level of rents um, and house prices at the same time. All those things together do, in fact, cause inflation. No, it's just but, money uh, going to poor people. <laughs> right, exactly. But what the, So what the Fed decided to do is seeing all of these things that it mostly has no control over, uh, specifically oil and food, which was a big part of, of inflationary pressures, and, and rents, which haven't gone down since the Fed started raising rates. But needless to say, they ignore that. They raised rates from 0% to 5% in the period of a year. So that's the most aggressive pace of hiking rates that they have been on since effectively the early 80s. And, yeah, and back then- I remember that. I remember mortgage rates getting up to like 12, 14, 15%. Right, now they, and they started from a higher level. So when you yeah. talk about rates at that level, that they started higher. So, so this particular period was the most of a percentage increase in interest rates ever yeah. in the fastest amount of time ever. So what that does is it causes banks like Silicon Valley Bank, like First Republic Bank, like like the mid-tier banks that, that we're talking about that don't get the kind of help from the Fed whenever they feel like it, that the J.P. Morgan Chase's, Wells Fargo's, and yeah, Bank of America's get. Yeah, they just have an open, open spigot. Correct. So so these banks don't. Nobody really cares. And what, what happened was all banks have to keep a certain amount of government bonds or treasury bonds on their books. Why? Because they're supposed to be pure. They're supposed to be what's called liquid. If their depositors want their money back, if they can sell the run. treasuries, yeah. correct? They can sell the treasuries, get money, and give it to the depositors who want their money. That's in theory how it works. Now, what happened when the Fed started raising rates really quickly is the value of those treasury bonds fell quickly. So when rates go up, the value of treasury bonds go down. It's it's basically geeky Wall Street bond Yeah, math. correlations. Correct. So, the all of these mid-tier banks who did hold treasuries in case of bank runs had to sell them quickly at losses in order to stop bank runs when they started. So yes, they didn't. And it all it's all smacked of insiderism to me. Like some tweets went out. There's, you know the. People that are closest to these banks are like, oh, we can manipulate prices here. Let's let's cause a run. Let's scare some people and see what shakes out. That that's exactly what happened with Silicon Valley Bank, for example. Those those, those were definitely tweets of sort of early hedge fund or re related people who sort of noticed it. Things went out, and overnight they lost a large chunk of deposits. They did not have enough treasuries to make up for those deposits because also their treasuries, because of the Fed's rate hikes had gone down in value. So what they even thought they had to make up for that problem wasn't even enough because the value of what they had to stop the runs yeah. wasn't enough. 
So both things happened at the same time, and this has been unfolding not just at Silicon Valley Bank, but at, at, at numerous banks. It happened at Silvergate, which was a bank that actually lent money to a lot of techie funds, but also at banks like um, First Republic, which is which is a mid-tier bank, which had the same problem. Right now, PacWest, which is a bank that is um, based um, based in California, they, they effectively are, are facing the same problem. That Their deposits have been taken out at this point, a combination of fear and another thing. Those banks never gave their depositors enough interest on their money, so there was no incentive for depositors to keep their money in a bank that they're afraid to be in anyway, yeah. when all they're getting is like less One than a percent or less. Exactly. Yeah. So it all it all happened like together. Passbook accounts. Almost. Correct. Yeah. So so all this stuff is happening together, um, and, and yes, fear is 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 sort of exacerbating fear, but the reality is all these mid-tier banks didn't have enough of high-value treasuries on hand as rates went up and the values went down to stop any of these runs. And as a result, what they were doing, which we're now seeing the results of, is they were borrowing money from federal home loan borrowing systems and everything mm -hmm. else in order to, to make that up for what familiar. was exactly hemorrhaging out. This is still going on. So there's a good eight to ten mid-tier banks right now that are in almost the same position um, that First Republic was in a few weeks ago when it basically had to declare failure and be taken out or bought yeah. by J.P. Morgan Chase. It just feels like it's the consolidation, the inequality, everything is just getting parted out. That's right. But who who benefits? Sweet Bono. Well, so. The head of J.P. Morgan Chase benefits. Um, J.P. And is that J Jamie Dimon still? I don't even know. He is still there. He he's been there he's through. He's like a fossil. He's like never going Jurassic away. Jurassic period. Uh, he he was. What he happened was to Robert Rubin? Is he still around? He's like one of the money guys that I kind of liked. I don't know why. He just seemed to be kind of friendly or something. Um. He, well, he's he, probably an evil man. I don't know. <laughs> um. He was a former co-president at Goldman Sachs before I I worked there. He he was um involved in the. In the Treasury Department, he was involved in deregulating the banking system when he worked for uh, President Clinton. Um, and one of the reasons why we actually have these big banks like J.P. Morgan Chase, who are able to suck up these smaller mid-tier banks when they have the remotest of problems and therefore become bigger, um, for which again people like Jamie Dimon are, are the recipients. Because not only do they get to like Pac-Man up these banks, but they also get the Federal Reserve thanking them for doing it. Absolutely. It's so perverse. And they know that should they make bad bets, they'll get bailed out. That's exactly right. And and that's what we've seen time How do time I get too big to fail? I've always wanted to know. What is the what is the the trigger point or the mechanism or how do I get too big to fail? Yeah, I mean, I think I got a mind meld with, with, with Jamie Dimon um, and, and sort of get his life. But no, basically, all these, the banks that have become or are too big to fail are legacy banks that have had generations. And I, I write about all of those generations and yeah, all the president's no, banks. I know. I wanted to talk about that because that Jekyll Island meeting in 1907 has these. And even uh, J.P. Morgan himself wasn't there, right? It was like he was happened to be... Yeah, if you've read, he wasn't um, even there. Yeah, there's um. So going back to how do you become too big to fail? Well, well, recently, recent times. First of all, you have the history of the relationships with the people that make the laws, and then you have the history with the establishment of the Federal Reserve that prints the money to help yeah. you when you need so it. So 1907, they basically drew up the concept of having this. You know, after the panic of 1907, they're like, no, we can't put ourselves at risk. We need to put 
the taxpayers, the government, the some prime lender at risk. We got to spread the risk out. We got to privatize the upside and collectivize the downside. That that's exactly right. So you know, mentioning um, J.P. Morgan, um, who was not at the 1910 meeting at Jekyll Island. 1910, where, okay. Well, no, they started in 1907. You're right. There, there was the panic in 1907, and it took them a few years to figure out meetings back and forth to the European Central Banks, congressional acts, wow. who's going to be the right president to do this under. Lots of things kind of happened. Well, it's strange it was Woodrow Wilson, because I think of him as a very, you know, one of those opaque characters, because he had all these great 14 points ideals, and yet he was so racist, like, what he did in the White House, firing all the black employees and getting rid of black postmasters and undoing the Republicans' like only solidly decent, you know, policies about, you know, blacks and so forth. It's interesting. He he definitely had a very um, privileged upbringing, um, East Coast, Princeton, etc. But but also um, related to the Fed and why the Federal Reserve Act that created the Fed got passed under him and not under um, President yeah. Taft before him. Who seemed like a more natural Absolutely. ally to the Wall Street interests. Absolutely. But what's very interesting, and you bring up a really good point, and I, I, it's one of my two or three favorite parts of all the President's bankers was this whole sort of evolution of the Fed and Taft and Wilson, is that Oftentimes, the most innocuous-looking yet potentially dangerous acts pass under Democrats and don't pass under Republicans. It's just sort of a thing that, that happens hmm. sometimes historically, certainly with, with respect to money. And the reason I think it passed under Woodrow Wilson was because it was tried under Taft, um, and it didn't have... Um, as much support, and they sort of rejiggered it to make it seem as if the Fed was really just like a mother bank to the farmer banks throughout the middle of the country. So they mm. repackaged the Fed as not something that was helping the Wall Street banks, but as like 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 Morgan's Bank, but as something that if there was a run on the Wall Street banks, would be able to help parcel out the money Midwest, West, and throughout the country to all these little regional banks. Now, obviously, that's not what happened. But yeah. under Wilson, that narrative took hold in Congress. And it's really fascinating as a period of our history. It's very little um, known. And also the confidant, one of, one of the sort of best friends, and this is a fantastic relationship in, in all the president's bankers, and I, I just, I think it's fascinating, um, and very, very, very untold. Um, a man named Tom Lamont was like yeah, the number two guy. A, he was a working class guy, right? Didn't he work his way up? He wasn't like Nelson Aldrich or one of those barons of, uh, you know, gilded age types, right? Wasn't he somebody that worked his way up from a teller position or something? That's right. He worked his way up the Morgan chain. Very smart guy. He went yeah. to the Ivy League schools that they did, but he was always that like, you know, Scholarship guy who didn't. Yeah, he wasn't in. He wasn't a Morgan. He wasn't a Rockefeller, and he worked himself up into the Morgan Bank. Um, a really good writer. He he was a journalist. There's lots of things he did over the years. Um, very good with words. Very good with logic. And he became um, very close to Woodrow Wilson before World War One, um, when the Fed was being created, and then after World War One, he was actually with him in um, when the Treaty of Versailles was was written. He was actually uh, through multiple yeah. years mm -hmm. with with Wilson. They were kind of best buds, and so he was one of the people on the inside that history doesn't really talk about. Um, and perhaps for good reasons, and perhaps not with respect to the Fed. I think he really believed it could be useful to the overall country, but but 
Obviously, it was useful to the Morgan Bank where he worked as well, so yeah. hard to know. Um, but he was one of the, the big sort of confidants of, of Wilson that helped to sort of massage the language that made it like tenable. More bipartisan to get some Democrats on board to make yeah. it seem like they could bring something back to their constituents that these bank runs weren't going to put the farmers out of their out of their seed crops and their equipment and, uh, you know, the grub stakes they need to get through the next harvest exactly. and all the stuff that sells at election time. Exactly. But meanwhile, they're just, I don't want to say pigs at the trough. There's probably a more elegant way to phrase that. But well, they do seem to take care of themselves pretty well. They, they know how to, how to do that. And, and the result of that narrative back then is something that we're still dealing with now. You know, we, we have a situation where our mid-tier banks, for, for different reasons, but largely because of some of the stuff the Fed's been doing recently, um, are failing um, in another wave of failures and, and being taken out by the bigger banks. Yeah. And what is the upshot? I mean, you say that there's so many trillions of dollars still sloshing around that hasn't been allocated or made its way down to, you know, the cash flow loans for startups. And I mean, the Silicon Valley Bank was mostly like for hedge funds and big depositors and so forth. But yeah. there were they did actually put some money to work. Right. Well, they did. They, they, they did put money behind tech startups. Some work, some didn't. Um, and, and, and banks like, again, First Republic were were working with just real people. I mean, it, it, it wasn't so much a lending bank. They didn't over leverage. They just simply didn't have enough to stop the runs yeah. um, on their on their deposits. And it, these runs are started through some often kind of sketchy means. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. It's very, you know, the one thing about Trump that really, I was like, uh-oh, we're in trouble, is when he said, the system's rigged. It's rigged. I know it's rigged because it's rigged for me. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that was like early 2016, maybe the Republican debates, and everybody was horrified that he would, you know, say the quiet parts out loud. And right. I was like, oh, man. Not that it, he's not taking advantage of that rigging or not that he's not doing anything to it help it, but... I think that struck a chord with people. Oh, absolutely. I think I think the fact, and you know, going back to that election, <clears throat> and not necessarily knowing what was going to happen after. Well, some of us, you know, obviously surmised, but um, there was a lot of negativity towards Wall Street. Um, there was a lot of negativity towards um, the Clintons for being connected to Wall Street. Not and that Trump wasn't obviously Glass uh, dismantling Glass Steagall and all of all of that, and, and, and ultimately. Um, obviously Trump was by no means a pauper, so it's it's kind of weird that, that he became that voice of, of the other side, but but however that went down at the time, yeah, the words, the rig, the I'm going to, you know, be against Wall Street, all that kind of stuff, which he never did no, of course in not. office, but, but which no he used. For him, yeah. Exactly. Just, it, I think you're right. I think it, it absolutely struck a chord. Yeah, and still does. Yeah. So what what is the what were some times maybe that, you know, economic policy did work? And going back to those narratives, like I think it's uh, in Collusion, which talks about, you know, 2007, 2008, mm -hmm. quantitative easing and so forth, mm -hmm. that the narrative stuck that, oh, these homeowners and these, you know, like uh, was the big short talking about those strippers in Florida buying homes. Mm -hmm. And that was when they were like, oh, mm -hmm. we got to short the market now. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but they but they put that as a, you know, easy money for working people. That's a moral hazard. And look what they, they got overextended and they almost brought down the system. 
Yeah. Nobody forced them to take that money. It was just pushed. You know, Countrywide used to take over the Ohio oh. Valley Inn every year. Oh, did it? Wow. Yeah, they Countrywide was yeah. definitely horrific. And I, I, I wrote a lot about that in um, in a book called It Takes a Pillage, which which yeah. was before all the president's bankers, but um, also all the president's bankers. But, but the fact is that you're right. Um, it's another one of these false narratives, which which comes up every time there's another problem. So so um, at the time, what had happened was, yes, some people were able to borrow at much higher rates than other people, loans for which they might not have been able to repay. But that was not actually the problem. That did not bring down the system. What brought down the system, what created the crisis, what created bailouts, what created um, you, know, you mentioned quantitative easing or the Fed going super crazy with printing money out of nowhere. All of that happened because of how the large banks were able to kind of engineer um, financially and sort of rejigger all of yeah, these, these subprime new, loans. These products. That's these, right. Yeah, credit, <clears throat> what do they call them, CDOs and credit obligations. What, what were the C- I Yeah, there, there were things called CDOs, which are... Um, collateralized debt obligations, yeah. which is really wonky. And, and, and the point of which happened was, um, in terms of numbers, um, there were subprime loans, there were borrowers that, that went under, that were foreclosed upon, that could not um, make their mortgage payments when rates were going up, when their jobs were being lost, when the economy was tanking, right? Yeah. So that did happen. But um, these securities that were created on top of those loans, it's a little bit like you know, if you thought of people as being ants and then you thought of like an elephant stepping on the ants, it'd be like the JP Morgans or the elephants kind of stepping on the ants. So the ants might get smushed beneath them and create sort of like, you know, messiness on the pavement. But the reality is it's the elephants that ultimately um, have taken over, you know, the problems in the financial system and expanded upon them. And this is what um, Citigroup, JP Morgan, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch before it was part of Bank of America, all these banks did was they created out of these loans, these subprime loans, these bigger and bigger packages. And all of these big packages of other kinds of And they could hide all the bad debts in there. They, they could, could hide the debts. They could lie about the debts. They could cut them and get rid of them. They could sell them off to a Norwegian-like suburb, I mean, yeah, municipality. I mean, there's all oh, sorts wow. of stuff happening throughout the world with, um, with the sort of tiny bit of which uh, were the subprime loans that yeah. are blamed for the entire catastrophe. But it wasn't. They were multiplying... Um, the ability of these subprime loans to pay interest into larger and larger and larger and larger new securities. And, yeah. and there was no way that was ever going to work. If every single subprime borrower made good on every single one of their loans, there still would have been a collapse of all of the securities that were built on Even top of them. every last mortgage payment, every, was, single every one. last check cleared. That's right. Um, because of the mathematics of what these banks were doing at the so same time. So somebody knew, obviously. They all People knew. knew. They knew what they were doing. But the more opaque they make it, the easier it is to sell or to convince people that it's the next big opportunity. And well, that's Money right. makes money. Money on top of money. That's right. And, and that's what they did. And when things started going south, the, the whole game on Wall Street was not to be left holding you know, the hot potato at the end. And, and the Fed and the Treasury Department and the government helped... Um, to ensure that the largest banks, which still exist today, Citigroup, yeah. J.P. Morgan, Chase, who yeah, are intrinsic are. to this problem, um, were the only ones capable, given their their vastness, to even create these securities and sell them as they did. 
um, exist just fine right now. And are again, and once again, we see them buying up smaller banks and smaller yeah. loans in those banks. And the inequality is getting. Is there a certain point where it's just untenable that it's inevitable that there's going to be protests and revolution? And you know, I think about. I don't know if you're familiar with Eric Hoffer. He wrote it's like the ordeal of change or mm-hmm. true believer. And his thinking is that the system gets ready to collapse, not when it gets too strict or too tight or repressive, but those moments when it just first starts to open or mm-hmm. or get more a little more transparent, like, you know, the liberalization reforms of the National Assembly in France led directly to the, mm-hmm. you know, as soon as the king backed off a little bit, gave a little bit of authority up, then, you know, the sans culottes were taken over the streets. And, you know, just how that, like the Chinese Cultural Revolution, it wasn't that, you know, oh, that all of a sudden the students are equal with the teachers. And, mm-hmm. you know, it just seems like we're kind of getting to that stage. Like, could get bad. Well, I, I do think that. I actually close um, part of um, the ending chapters of Permanent Distortion saying that, that we're effectively entering a period where civil unrest is, 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 is going to only sort of compound and get worse. And that's because of this permanent distortion, that inequality between the real economy and what goes into the, in the financial markets. Now, this was already happening before the pandemic. And oh, yeah. I talk about this in, in the book, and it's really... Um, frighteningly interesting is that in 2019 before the pandemic it was the single it was the year of the single most spread out and number of civil um, uprisings around the entire world in in Mm. one year net of net of wartime Um, so basically many different populations across the world you know from hong kong to the u.s were were protesting um, civil and financial instability um, in different ways um, in the streets and, and against their, um, their governments. And all of that sort of stopped in 2020 um, with, with COVID. Um, yeah. I'm not making the, the connection between the two, but, but it just so happened. And again, I, I have, the, I have this, um, you know, a lot of the articles and the, the statistics about this in the book um, from you know, sources from the economists, um, you know, throughout different ones are very respected around the world, but that they, we were having a lot of issues. The world was really ripping apart at the seams because of a lot of inequality um, and, and the instability that caused. And then we had, um, you know, sort of lockdowns and that had the effect, among other things, of, of kind of dissipating a lot of that because people just simply were not in the streets again because they yeah. could. So, so it did have the effect of sort of batting back what was, the, that's mm-hmm. right. Um, and now, you know, we're we're at a period where we're slowly, but but actually, that that's starting to kind of happen again. People are getting edgy. Well, there you talk about the shocking st- stats on how much wealth billionaires accumulated in during the pandemic, when everybody else was just struggling to get, you know, food insecurity was at an all-time high. And that's right. And all these people are more than doubling their wealth. Didn't Jeff Bezos more than double his wealth over the however many hundreds of billions he had? Yeah. Went up uh, even further. Yeah. I mean, there's, I forgot the stats, but something that they were making $15,000 a second or something extra, just some oh, number, whatever it was. Oh, yeah. The, um, but they, that they profit so much on this, these great disruptions. Yeah. 
because, and again, the Fed, going back to what we are talking about before, it, it fed into a lot of this because by, by creating the amount of money that they created and blaming it on $1,400 stimulus checks, the actual effect was that the stock values in a lot of these people's companies, from Elon Musk to Jeff Bezos, et cetera, um, just went skyrocketing. It was not because people used their $1,400 checks to buy stock. That in itself would not have made Jeff Bezos' nope. value of his stock go up so much higher. That That's not what actually happened. What happened was there was more money flooding into the system through the banking system and through the hedge yeah. funds and through the larger investors that then um, borrowed against it, borrowed against it, you know, used it, speculated with, and sort of created more money out of that to push the markets up. And so um, indirectly or so, directly, the, the, the Fed was involved in, in, know, in just, that as well. Just like your, your premise is that the real economy and the Wall Street economy are just diverging wildly, that they're just becoming completely but, untethered. That's right. Because it used to be with, like, stocks, you had a certain coefficients of their earnings to their... To the value and you know stocks would typically trade you know or like a company would sell you know three to five to eight times EBITDA maybe you know one and a half two times their gross earnings it was very very stable stable yeah mm -hmm. straightforward now there's absolutely no I mean Amazon took like what 20 years to turn a profit yep and then it just went nuts I mean it's it's um I mean, if you have 20 years before you have to turn a profit, you know, you can afford to buy up market share and, and yeah. bury your competitors. That's and right. It seems like the, it does have that Gilded Age feel to it, like with those railroad barons just laying tracks all around their competitors. Or yeah. John D. Rockefeller yeah. with these Oil. pipelines going up and around yeah. and over. Yeah. And, and it They're was not... They were buying market share. They were buying market share. And it was not an accident that, you know, pipelines and train tracks, you know, followed each other and, and all of that. I mean, this was all part of sort yeah. of the same the same sort of impact of the time where it was more infrastructure and energy-based, and now it's it's a little bit more paper. But it's... it's yeah, although there was a yeah, lot of paper back then, too. There was a lot of paper yeah. back then as well. But, but that's the thing. Yeah, you, you do have, whether it's first movers or best connected or lucky or whatever, you know, some combination, you know, family connections, whatever, that create this ability to just, like, you know, sort of suck in the capital of the time and sort of, you know, suck it out from everywhere else. And, and, and we see this... Um, Time and time again, it, it happened in the panic in 1907. We talked about where it happened during the Great Depression. Um, it happened in the financial crisis of 2008. It happened after the pandemic, and and sort of what um, it happened in the 70s when we went off the the, the gold standard when the Fed was able yeah. to create more money without a mooring on the yeah, other side of that? it. Richard Nixon. What was his plan with that? Was there what was the triggering event for going off the peg into gold? what happened going off but the gold standard. The triggering event was that other countries were selling dollars um, because they wanted uh, gold. Um, and that's because there was inflationary, you know, not, not unlike today, except we don't have a gold standard, but there's inflationary pressures throughout the world. Um, and there was, there was pressures with respect to oil and, and fuel. And, and other countries were effectively saying, hey, you know what, we're going to sell the dollars we have because out in the current system before the gold standard was abolished, we can actually get um, mm. gold back for the dollars we have. Yeah, you can that go was the to whole the entire bank point. And they got to give you an ounce of right, gold. That was, that, yeah. Right, that was the relationship. <clears throat> and and you know, gold at the time was $42 an ounce, now it's like $2,000 an ounce. But the point being that um, they all did that. And, and, and what happened was 
Nixon's Nixon and his Treasury Secretary and, and the banking case goes back to the banking community as well and this was led by Chase and, and David Rockefeller was with the sort of number two spot at Chase was basically that 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 family um, Wait, are the Rockefellers still in uh, banking I, I think they own share I mean they might own shares they don't they don't okay. run the bank anymore there's no no of the fail sons still involved mm, or? I again they probably own shares yeah. I, I don't I'm know. fascinated by Dwight by Rockefeller yeah. just because of yeah, so John D. Rockefeller just like retired when he was like 49 or 50 huh. years old. A lot of people don't know that, but uh-huh. he made the vast portion of his wealth just money on top of money. It yeah. was just banking and early on, oil yeah. to banking. And and I um, so when I mentioned a couple places in all presidents' bankers that that I really like got into and I, I learned from one was the Wilson period with Thomas Lamont and then the Morgans when the Fed was created the other was the relationship between David Rockefeller and, and Richard Nixon which like is completely like dug into his you know the bowels of history but um, but it existed and he was one of the bankers that pushed for um, the abandonment of the gold standard because the banks also were having a problem raising liquidity. They were also phasing inflationary pressures and deposit problems and debt problems. And so they wanted indirectly the Fed to be able to print money for them then too, which the Fed could not do if it was all backed by gold because it had a specific attachment to it that it did not have enough of to back if the gold standard stayed in place. You can't print gold. And so, um, so 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 once we were off the gold standard, just in general, what that allowed for, and it took decades to kind of manifest, which is why looking back in history, it's interesting where these inflection points happened. That was a very big one. Um, what that led to ultimately was where we're at now, which is the Fed being able to create $9 trillion um, in, in, in two separate major instances over 12 years, 2008-2020, um, without having to have it backed by anything. Yeah. Um, and. And, and that creates instability. Just the full faith and confidence, right. whatever that's worth. Exactly, and no, no, nothing physical. And so now we have another period in time where, where other countries and central banks as well are wanting to own more gold and dollars um, for different reasons, to potentially back their own new currencies or whatever it might be. But, but there's yeah. this idea that fabricating money against a debt economy when we have so much debt um, we have $31 trillion of debt. Yeah, you turn on the news right now, all you're hearing about is debt ceiling squabblings in, in Capitol Hill. Yeah. Um, but the reality is... It just seems like kabuki theater to me. It is, a lot of it. Um, it's going to, you know, <laughs> the ceiling will get raised. They will calm yeah. down. We will move on. They will horse trade. It'll happen. It's politics. It's happened every single time. But, but, the, but the backdrop of it is that we do inti- continue to increase our debt. That does have an impact on real people in the real economy, and it drags on the real economy because you don't have money available to build, to create infrastructure, to upgrade grids. Yeah. I mean, look look at Ojai, right, right, and the fires that we've had, um, and, and, and the companies that have been involved. And had we had, um, can't prevent all the fires that have happened in California, but a number of them have been connected to faulty grids. Um, it's just one example well, of... Yes, the Thomas Fire specifically. Correct, I'm thinking specifically of the Thomas yeah. Fire. Um, and, and obviously that was a choice that was made by, by Con Ed, but it was also indicative of not investing in infrastructure um, in a very highly debt-oriented economy um, yeah. that, that we have. And that, well, I, I, w- I wonder, though, I think about this because just like my own situation, I think about if I add up mortgage and car loans and you know credit cards and so forth, that's like four hundred thousand dollars. Like that's a mm-hmm. lot of money, and that's 
three, four times what I would make in a year. Mm-hmm. I mean, isn't and I'm not the only one. No, a lot of people are roughly yeah. that that uh, over leveraged. Yes, um, and but actually, why is it that's different for governments. <laughs> and that's a really good point. I mean, the leverage of, of four to one is is fairly normal, um, exactly. In in you know, sort of regular people's society, um, with banks. It's a minimum of 10 to 1, and certain securities could be 20, 30, 40, 50 to 1 under the cover of, on average, they're 10 to 1. Um, so these, these mm-hmm. institutions are, are very over-leveraged. Um, the government, more so than the typical household. More so than the typical household, um, by definition, and by the fact that they control the leverage of the individual household by being the net sort of lender, um, whereas they get their money from the household and from the Fed. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a whole different structure. But yes, the, the average debt to income or debt to um, asset yeah. um, ratio for, for people is, is, is far better than it is for banks um, because people don't actually have a Fed backing well, the them and the Fed. Yeah, the we're not going to. They're not going to let us leverage ourselves 10, 20, 30 times. Well, that's, that, that's exactly right. And, and, um, and nor do those mid-tier banks that are failing have that kind of leverage until recently where they had to borrow more to, to survive until they couldn't. But, but mm. the big banks have theoretically 10 to 1 leverage, but the reality is it's, it's way more than that when you start to dig into the individual parts of their books and like yeah, kind of add it how it's up. all shuffled around. Right. Fiat currency. But isn't everything fiat currency when you get right down to it, though? I mean, isn't it all just like, I don't know if you read Sapiens. Noah Yuval Harari's book about everything, you know, the history of mankind uh-huh. and how much we take on just faith. Like we do. The myths that we build up around everything. We do. Um, we, I mean, if we think about what money kind of is, it's really just an exchange. It's an agreed-upon exchange of, of something um, Some, for something in place of two values. other things. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's based on the relative value of, of two things, you know, goods and services, you know, how we define an economy. It's so abstract. I just can't get my mind around it. I, just I mean, it is. It is. I mean, if we didn't have money um, and you just sort of went back to or had some sort of barter system, it'd be like, hey, I'll write a book for you if you, like, fill my tank with gas twice a Week or what? I mean, it, 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 the idea of money was to sort of you know unify those those sort of exchanges, but but by printing money, by by having fiat currencies that aren't backed by anything that's a part of the real economy, yeah. um, it kind of becomes much more about faith, um, faith in governments, faith in the system, faith in, in your ability to get money out of your you know ATM. Um, and that's when what you were talking about in uh, one of your books about. 2007, I think the big worry was people would not be able to get their money out of the ATMs. Like it got that dire. Yeah, it got, and that was that was the big sort of scare that um, Hank Paulson, kind of the, the Treasury Secretary at the got time, got down on his knees to Nancy Pelosi. That's right. That's right. He did, and um, and that was the idea that the people, the poor American people, most of whom had literally nothing to do with any of this. Yeah. Um, at all, and even the ones that had something to do with any of this, as we talked about, had very little to do with what actually happened. Um, the idea that ATMs could, you know, sort of close down did freak out Nancy Pelosi in Congress, and they did pass uh, one piece of many bailouts, um, net of what the Federal Reserve gave to banks. And and the reality was that 
The only reason ATMs would not give money to people is because banks wouldn't want to give that money away because they wanted to hoard that money because they were afraid for themselves that they would collapse, like we have yeah. been seeing happen in the mid-tier banks. But the big banks didn't want that to happen to them. So unlike the mid-tier banks that we have been seeing fail, and, and I believe there are more to fail, uh, the big banks were like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. We are going to have a bailout. We are going to have this package. And, and if, if Hank Polson wants to get down on his knees and say that the ATMs won't work, well, again, the only reason they won't work and won't spit out money is because the banks won't allow them to, right? But that was not part of the narrative. And so they did get their money. Um, they did. It's like uh, <laughs> that uh, National Lampoon magazine cover, uh, buy this magazine or I'll shoot this dog. Remember, they got a puppy up there and oh, yes, a revolver exactly. pointed oh, to his head. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was literally that. And um, and that's what happened. We're, we're again, still living with, with the consequences of that. So all these sort of periods in history where, where money um, has these sort of shocks come in to it. You know, it's the Federal Reserve being created, the, the gold standard being abandoned, um, the Fred... OPEC, the, the Fed printing money, all these sort of shocks to the financial system all manifest in ultimately the consolidation of the bigger banks relative to um, people. Yeah. It just feels like a Darwinian. It, it know, is. The big fish eat the little fish. It, it, it's, it, it's absolutely, what, and that's why I, I call the book Permanent Distortion. I mean, the idea is um, you know, I'd, I'd love to sit here and say this is all going to change, and we're going to like be in the streets. Well, I do want to talk about that. I got. We're going to. We'll wrap up soon. Mm -hmm. I know you've been generous with your time, but what would work? Like if you were in charge. Now I want to talk a little bit about your background because you're you're uh, you come from the belly of the beast. Mm -hmm. But how would you? Since you've been on the inside, what would you think would would work? Like what would be the a better system, or well, is it just the complications of human nature? Well, there are obviously complications and, and, and hierarchies in human nature that, that a financial system can't eradicate um, and make everything equal. I mean, that's that's a nice thought if that could be the case. I don't, I don't think that's realistic. But I do think that there could have been restrictions on the banking system all along the way that would have made... Guardrails. Guardrails that would have made the... the availability of money to go into the real economy more direct as opposed to having it sort of like funnel into banks for different reasons through different crises. That they could just buy back stock or Correct. sit on their books and force them or like uh, con conditions to <clears throat> make whatever kind of certain number of certain types of construction loans or you know whatever That's right. actually gets gets paychecks in people's pockets. That's right so so if I were in charge of the banking system because I can't change human nature. Um, there's a couple things that that could have and should have been done. We should not have um, voted to get rid of Glass the Glass Steagall Act in 1933, yeah. which which actually at the time separated the the banks from their yeah. deposit and Retail loan businesses, and investment, yeah. right from their speculative businesses. That I think should have been brought back at the very least in the 2008 financial crisis wake, and that didn't happen. Um, and that's I don't see it. I've been working with uh, Washington on that for now over um, 20 years of trying to get that thing um, 
back on the table with Republicans and, and Democrats and um, occasionally get some traction, then it goes back. And it, the reality yeah. is no one wants to do it because at the end of the day, I think our politicians like the status quo because it gets them into office. <coughs> Whether they're railing against it or supporting it or, or being um, enabled by it, it gets them into office. And I think there's a real, particularly with finance, fear of, of, of changing anything. Like they're not going to understand it enough to change it, so no change happens. I think that's a big part of it. Uh, the complexity makes it so people are just, they just feel like it's so fragile. Right. Um, and the other thing I would do is I, w- I would have banking um, that relates to the real economy, so so loans for infrastructure projects, not just the federal funding that comes into infrastructure or upgrading or, or schools or hospitals or electric grids or you know new forms of energy or whatever it is, but but have that be funded through a bank where where deposits are in that bank, where funding is in that bank, where that bank only makes loans for those purposes, whether it's on the local, state, or federal level, or working together across those three levels, so that. The economy and, and people that actually work at it um, have a a, a, a better proportioning. Yeah. Well, a better proportioning of, of the capital, that, of the money that's available, yeah. as opposed to it's sort of going into the J.P. Morgans, who then get to decide. Well, you know, we don't really feel like helping to fund this railroad or this bridge or this. You know, just no. Um, but to have a better mechanism for capturing more money, including depositors' money, into a banking system that actually puts it back into the economy and that is their only job yeah interesting so um we can we can wrap up this really been fascinating discussion i'm just really impressed that one that you're this is probably the smallest audience that you're going to uh, address but Definitely one of the more grateful ones. Oh, well, I, I mean, here, look, I'm, a, I'm an Ojai local. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, and happy to be that. And I, I absolutely am, am glad we took this. Any uh, couple of reading recommendations besides your Well, own my books. Work. Yeah, of course. <laughs> which you got quite a shelf going. It's quite impressive. I, 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 I do. I, I do. I do have a bunch of books. And, and I, I probably have more books. What are you working on now? Maybe that's a have. way to. Maybe that's a good good way to. Um, you know, I am looking at the energy sector, sector and I'm, I'm looking at the energy economy, and I don't quite have the idea yet, but I'm definitely looking at how where we're at in like our transition of energy, yeah. not both to clean, to better grids, to electrification, mm-hmm. um, to using better battery technology, um, just just effectively how we are really. Um, doing this transition from everything old goes to new back energy. To energy everything 100 percent of everything and I, I think there's there's some you know that sort of one sentence elevator speech uh, happy to hear from listeners about what what they think that could be between um the economy and energy that's different from anything else that that's yeah. been written well i'm i'm almost done with Vashtov schmiel's energy and civilization that mm-hmm. would be my recommendation mm-hmm. i don't know if you've read that book it's really i have not he there. goes through this the history of how Energy has just shaped civilization. Mm-hmm. Oh, I do want to read that then. That, that's fascinating. There's also a book called The Power, which is about the whole 30s um, TVA and just oh, yeah. in general. Awesome. How the energy I love FDR. I think that whole period yeah. is so fascinating. That's a fasc- fascinating period. And we built so much and we changed so much. Um, yeah, we're still coasting on that mm-hmm. energy and uh, initiative, I feel like. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we won World War II because of the investments that people made in the 30s. All right, Nomi. Uh, thank you so much. This has really been great fun for me personally, thank you so and much, I hope Matt, people yeah. enjoy the conversation. I do too. Thank you so much for your time. 
Brett Bradigan here, just thinking out loud. So, Nomi Prince was kind enough to give up some of her time. I wish we could have kept going. I, I really felt like it was just getting some rhythm. It's amazing how fast the time goes by when you're enjoying the conversation. It's definitely one of the high points of my week doing this podcast. I especially would have liked to spend more time on her book, All the President's Bankers, because it really goes through each administration and how it's basically the same set or subset of bankers, or banksters, as you might even call them, that have driven policy for the last century and a half. Many of them are related to each other, went to the same schools, married into the same families, inherited a lot of wealth, managed to make even more, and they do good things with it. I mean, maybe it's guilt money that funds the philanthropic organizations like the Metropolitan Opera House and Oxfam and nonprofit groups around the world. But the collusion, which is the title of another one of her books, which uh, speaks more to the central banking around the world and how, again, so elite-driven, creating more and more inequality. And that's one of the things I didn't get to talk about was, which I thought was a fascinating book by Thomas Piketty, the French economist called Capital, which uh, he, it's his, he posits, I don't know, um, I don't think you can disagree with the stats so much, maybe his conclusions about those statistics, that the inequality was lesser after the world wars in the interregnum between World War I and World War II. And then after World War II to about 1970, less inequality than there had been in many centuries because, as he explains it, so much wealth was destroyed. It wasn't that it was more evenly distributed so much as so much of it was just obliterated and bombing and warfare which is kind of a sobering conclusion. People talk about inequality. Uh, one of the things that creates equality is catastrophe. So I guess you got to be careful what you wish for. Uh, but as uh, uh, Nomi explains, there are ways to put up guardrails to make sure that the money goes to the people who will put it to work. So I think that's something to keep in mind. Anyway, that's it for this episode of Ohio Talk of the Town. We'll keep an ear out for you.